Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Red Rock Canyon country of southeastern Utah and northeastern Arizona is among the most isolated, wild, and beautiful regions of North America. In the not-too-distant past, Europeans and Americans mostly avoided, disdained, or ignored it. In his book, Wrecks of Human Ambition, Paul Nelson illustrates how this landscape undercut notions and expectations of good, productive land held by the first explorers, settlers, and travelers. Even today, its aridity and sandy soils prevent widespread agricultural exploitation, and its cliffs, canyons, and rivers thwart quick travel in and through the landscape. Eventually, the rise of tourism brought new ideas of wilderness reverence to the region, and uh, the badlands became valuable precisely because they were so distinct from traditionally settled lands. Paul Nelson, in his book, looks at the colonial Spain's encounter with the region, lays out some of Mormonism's rare failures in settling the arid west. And uh, interesting uh, history, Paul Nelson is a native Utah, lifelong lover of canyon country. He's climbed, rafted, and hiked through the region extensively. He holds a Ph.D. in American history from Southern Methodist University. Paul Nelson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Great to be on. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. You uh, you have definite Utah roots. Um, I was uh, surprised to, to learn you are a grandson of Harrison Grouchich. I am, yeah. He actually, I was fortunate enough to uh, get one of his paintings for the cover of the book, and I think it turned out really well. And in fact, you you spent quite a bit of time in southern Utah at his vacation home. Yes, he had a vacation home kind of just outside the boundaries of what I called canyon country. Um, his vacation home was just south of Zion National Park, right on you know what we call the Arizona Strip, kind of the Utah-Arizona border. Um, right around Colorado City, actually, the polygamist haven. But yeah, spent a lot of time there as a kid. And then I got a uh, summertime rafting and horseback guiding job in Torrey, Utah, outside Capitol Reef National Park, right out of high school. And um, that kind of just sustained and perpetuated kind of a lifelong love affair I've had with that place. Hmm. Harrison Grouch, for people who don't know, a wonderful artist, uh, and uh, people in Cache Valley definitely would, would know him. Um, so you're familiar with the land. What... Uh, what made you want to write a history of the of the area? Um, I just kind of fell into it. You know, I have always, you know, just really been into that landscape. Um, you know, people who are familiar with it, with its literature, you know, they know of uh, Wallace Stegner, Stegner and Edward Abbey. I'd read all those uh, books, you know, from middle school on. And then um, after I graduated from Utah State, I was accepted into a uh, history PhD program at Southern Methodist University. Um, in Dallas, Texas, and they really focus on, they call it Southwestern studies, you know, mostly on the border between the United States and Mexico, um, colonial Spain, kind of that area, and somehow the two genres just mixed. I was like, well, I guess the canyon country, I could make the case for it being part of the Southwestern United States. Not a lot has been done on Spanish interest and exploration in that area from, you know, the 1600s on into the early 1800s. And so I just kind of mixed the academic with my own, you know, uh, personal uh, recreational life in there, and that's kind of how the book came about. Mm. You began with a very apropos illustration, um, the artificial imposition on the land of boundary lines and uh, the Four Corners um, area in in which, uh, you know, tourists can go there. Really, that's the only reason to go there is you can be in four states at, at once. I wonder if you could, uh, as you do in the book, compare and contrast this with with the actual topography of of Canyonlands. Well, it just seemed very ironic, you know, at the most fundamental level, and then just going on and on into, you know, however, you know, symbolic metaphor we want to take it, that um, 
you could make the case that the canyon country is one of the most twisted, convoluted, broken landscapes in the in the United States, maybe the world. Um, when I say twisted and broken, I mean that, you know, in order to travel maybe 10 miles as the crow flies, you may have to go across several dozen canyons in and out of hollows, up and down, and travel maybe, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 miles uh, by the time you get from point A to point B. Um, you know, countless settlers and explorers found that out the very hard way. And so it's, and it's, Beyond that, it is a country where the mark of human institutions um, and, you know, and human presence is very, very limited. Uh, that's why a lot of us, you know, kind of revere and love it today. Is you know, it's just very wilderness. And so it's ironic that right here in the middle of the canyon country, well, not really the middle, you know, slightly over to the, the southeast of it, I suppose, is this monument dedicated to the extreme opposite of that. It's in a twisted land. We have a monument to the linear in a land that is defined by the lack of human presence. We have a monument to the most contrived human-created political institutional boundaries imaginable, the Four Corners. And um, on the broad national scope of things, it's kind of interesting to see that as U.S. exploration and settlement gradually moved west, the political boundaries become more and more box-like. Uh, you know, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming were settled in, you know, uh, in the mid-1800s, you know, became states in the later 1800s. And they're just, you know, there's no thought at all to their natural, uh, their natural mountain or river boundaries in there. They're just boxes, you know, drawn by some guy in Washington. Uh, whereas in the East, uh, where there's you know more uh, more traditional colonial settlement there, uh, you have very natural political boundaries, you know, dictated by the rich of the Appalachians or the Mississippi River or something like that. So it's just kind of interesting to see this metaphor of human-imposed boundaries as it moves into harsher and harsher lands. And you're right. To colonize and incorporate was to map straight lines and ideas across the continent, literally and metaphorically. Uh, I guess I suppose part of the fact that it becomes more box-like is that uh, I don't know. You, you, you got tired of uh, of mapping the topography, and maybe it was unknown. Wh- wh- why do you think that is? Um, in a lot of ways, it is because it was unknown. What's interesting is the very earliest um, maps that were produced by by Spaniards or sometimes by cartographers in France or in the Netherlands, um, they would draw out these grand maps of North America, and almost always the area where the canyon country was, they would either leave blank, or more often they would put a little guide to the map, you know, like the key or the legends that we're so used to, precisely because they know, knew so little about it. But in drawing a map, you have to say, oh, we know about this land. And so that was kind of their little, like, get out of jail free card um, is, you know, putting this little uh, key over the top of it. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, I think your comment about, uh, you know, them just trying to put these boundaries, these box-like boundaries onto the land, it was a symptom of them just knowing so little about it. Um, You know, the, the U.S., has always, from day one, been about mastery within the continent. We have to subjugate the Indian tribes. We have to make the deserts bloom. We have to make everything just conform to this ideal of standard U.S. capitalist agrarianism. And so maybe these box-like boundaries were a way of kind of imposing this ahead of our actual you know, success or failure at, at incorporating it you know, commercially or, uh, or uh, culturally. Now, in Utah, we are used to thinking about these things through the prism of Mormonism. But as you point out in the book, this goes back a a very long way, this idea of good land and bad land. Good land was a land that you could could settle, 
It was green and verdant, and agriculture was, was central. Yes. And um, what's interesting is the relation of Mormonism to the canyon country. It's, it's, uh, it's very, very subtle. On one hand, um, as most Utahns know, uh, Utah, for a very brief window in the mid-1800s, was uh, an independent um, republic. You might even call it a theocracy, the state of Deseret. And if you look at the original boundaries of the state of Deseret, it was not a box. Uh, it followed natural boundaries. Uh, you know, it had its, you know, it uh, basically followed the topography of the Great Basin, of the ridges of the Rockies and the Wasatch, all the way down to Southern California. And in that sense, we can see that as a continuation of the fact that 19th century Mormonism was, in some ways, maybe a bit more, uh, it's anachronistic, but what historians would call like environmentally sustainable, environmentally conscious, than the rest of the United States was in the 1800s. Um, a few examples of that is uh, Brigham Young had very strict prohibitions on um, individual Mormon prospectors mining. Uh, there was a strict taboo against you know making profit off of gold and stuff like that. Uh, they were they they were all about you know just kind of the sustainability and conserving of their resources. So in that sense, Mormonism was maybe a bit more prepared to move into the Canyon Country and uh, and. Uh, and less likely to fail than, say, you know, miners from Colorado or Texas cattlemen would have been had they moved into the canyon country. But at the same time, we see that Mormonism had, if you know uh, the scriptures and kind of the basic stories that a lot of us who have grown up in the religion um, have, uh, you know, just been told over and over again, there's this narrative of change and redemption, and I saw a lot of really interesting uh, parallels between the Mormon view, and this is kind of a sticky subject, but between the Mormon view of race and the Mormon view of land. Um, Mormons viewed uh, Native Americans in the 1800s as a race that had been previously good, Nephites, and had somehow fallen due to their wickedness, and it was up to Mormons to redeem them, bring them back into the fold, and that was part of this grand narrative of bringing about um, the Second Coming and the Millennium. They saw land in the same uh, way. Uh, Joseph Smith, way before Mormonism got into Utah, uh, preached that the entire face of the earth, uh, you know, before Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden, uh, had been um, lush, verdant, rolling hills. It was just like central Missouri, you know, the area, Adam on Dioma, where he said uh, the Garden of Eden had been originally uh, located. And it was only with uh, Adam's transgression that things like mountains, deserts, uh, and broken canyons came to be. They're almost like a sign of less than perfect, uh, you know, of human imperfection, like put onto the land. I call it environmental original sin in the book. And Mormons also believe that it was up to them to reclaim this formerly good land, turn it from brown into green, and... Uh, and once again, just like conversion of Indians, uh, bring about uh, sort of this state of perfection, this return to Eden, this uh, this millenarian second coming kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yes. So, yeah, yeah there were a lot of parallels. Uh, and, and you write that um, a majority, a large percentage of what turned out to be rare Mormon failures in settlement were in this land, this, this canyon yeah, country you're talking um, about. It's kind of because, like I said, for the most part, uh, Mormons managed to build pretty environmentally sustainable communities. Uh, they had cooperative irrigation, cooperative agriculture. They were not known for, say, you know, because of their aversion to you know boom and bust style mining. They didn't 
set out and build, you know, mining towns that would quick spread up and have, um, uh, you know, saloons and brothels and, you know, Western piano players and all that stuff that we know from watching Westerns, and then quickly, you know, explode into dust, like in, say, Nevada or Colorado. And so, on that sense, a lot of early, there was a first wave of Mormon settlement during the lifetime of Brigham Young, up to about 1877, that, with one exception, they avoided the canyon country. And um, this is, on one hand, because there were already pockets of good land along the base of the Wasatch um, in Cache Valley, in Sampete Valley, those areas, that were already better places to live. Uh, They had the mountains at their backs for reliable uh, snowpack irrigation sources. Um, They had the mountains to put... put, you know, their, their cattle and sheep herds up into in the summer, uh, then move them down into the low country in the winter. So it's very, very good land, and they didn't have to colonize the canyon country. But the interesting thing that happened is after Brigham Young died, as Mormon authority was gradually eroding as the federal government um, in kind of, you know, Reconstruction era, era United States was moving in, conducting anti-polygamy raids, gradually kind of increasing its, it, its power hold on Utah, um, Mormons became more entrenched and kind of built a mythology uh, of the settlement of Utah in which they said, we are strong, we will overcome the United States, and we made the desert bloom. They looked back and said, the Salt Lake Valley was a desert, but because we are God's chosen people, we made the desert bloom. And this is, uh, this is an utter myth. The Salt Lake Valley was really not that bad of a place uh, when they settled it in, um, in 1847-48. And, but the thing is, they, they kind of built this mythology about it, and it primed them ideologically to jump into uh, the Canyon Country Desert. They didn't have Brigham Young. They didn't have strong authority saying, don't settle the desert anymore. They just had this mythology of saying, we're God's chosen people. We can make the desert bloom. And so they kind of formed several, uh, they were actually missions, the settlement of a, a town that failed um, along the Fremont River called Caneville in south-central Utah. It was a mission. People were called uh, from their congregations and told to go settle along this river. And they went into it, uh, started the same uh, irrigation infrastructures that they had started, um, you know, in Cache Valley or in Salt Lake uh, Valley or San Pete. And it completely failed because they were too far out into the desert. And ironically enough, these settlements did not fail as we would expect from drought. You know, they're in the desert, so we would think, well, they would just fail from lack of rain. They failed because of flash floods. Uh, they were too far down in these river basins. Anyone who has spent time along desert rivers knows that they could be a trickle, just an inch deep one day, and then there's a rainstorm 100 miles upstream, and it becomes a raging torrent that sometimes can be the volume of the entire Colorado River for just a, a day or a half a day. And that's what happened to uh, these Mormon towns that failed. There's one called Perea that uh, is um, in Kane County in present-day Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, and then Caneville, which is just east of uh, the present-day Kappa Reef National Park. And I make the case in this book that they failed precisely because Mormons in this second generation of settlement after the kind of high point of Brigham Young's mandated settlement, uh, they kind of invented this mythology of having made the deserts bloom and of, of the Salt Lake Valley being a worse desert than it had been, and that got them kind of primed to go into areas that otherwise they would not have gone into. And this overarching theme in your book that you're trying to impose your ideal on the land, which may or may not be sustainable. I wonder, uh, there are, I think, other forms that have proven a little more successful. Ranching, for example. I think you have some ranchers in that area at, at, at this point. 
Um, but, yeah, but that was um, not the ideal. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Th- that was not the ideal. In other words, the, the, the Mormon settlers, and they're not alone. You, you talk about the colonial Spaniards and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, people imposing their their ideals on the land. They were determined to do so. Yeah, and it's interesting because the ranching ideals, um, and once again, this is kind of testament to the success of Mormon communalism, the ranchers that did tend to succeed in the canyon country were Mormon. Uh, there were outside ranchers uh, from Colorado, from Texas, from New Mexico that came in, and their herds tended to fail because they tended to have you know low-paid cattle hands that weren't too engaged. They didn't have a direct ownership in um, the cattle herds, and they would just go out and you know turn their cattle herds out in you know San, what's today San Juan County, and um, and they would just fail. But most uh, Mormon cattle cooperatives, uh, they would stockpile wheat and uh, not wheat. Uh, stockpile alfalfa and grain feed uh, back on their agricultural settlements and stay with the herds as they were um, wintering over in the canyon country. And there were a couple really bad uh, freezes and droughts in the 1880s that all but wiped out uh, these outfits from Texas and from New Mexico. And the, the Mormon, they were called the Bluff Pool uh, out of San Juan County, uh, they actually succeeded. But what's interesting is they did not succeed by following the traditional Mormon model of, uh, of um, building an agricultural village, you know, with nice, orderly, gridded streets and Lombardi poplars and a little reservoir back up the canyon above your, uh, above your town. Uh, they succeeded by making compromises, being pragmatic, and I actually argue in the book by abandoning some of the elements of Mormon culture. It was the only way that they could succeed in the canyon country. Hmm. It occurs to me these uh, these issues are very much alive today. It's not the focus of your book, but I, I'm sure you've thought a bit about this. Uh, there is a vision in many areas of Utah and surrounding areas where you where you have that ideal. You know, the poplars lining the street, little reservoir up the, and that clashes very much with with a newer ideal of um, preservation wilderness. Yeah, there is an interesting ideal, and it, it's it's strange because uh, I very intentionally uh, dropped off the book's narrative around 1936 because after that point, well, the story gets much more complicated. You have a uh, federal incursion of um, you know of dam building, that kind of stuff, and then even after, well, beginning in 1936, actually, there was quite a bit of rural opposition in Utah to further designation of national parks and preservation and conservation. Um, I mean, we've just seen this in the last couple weeks, uh, you know, in Nevada with, uh, with the whole Bundy uh, fiasco, and then with this recent um, Fort Wheeler ride-in to recapture Canyon in San Juan County, where locals, and this isn't, you know, once again, we, we've moved so far beyond the narratives here, I don't think there's anything uniquely Mormon in this kind of uh, rural Western libertarian hostility to federal preservation, but we do once again have this clash of ideals. Um, Those who are on more of the side of extractive industries or of just wanting the freedom to turn their cows onto the desert or ride their four-wheelers through the desert, they have this expectation that if only the government would leave them alone, uh, they would be free to, you know, carry out their their cowboy fantasies or mythologies or whatever, and that's just not accurate. Uh, If we, we really see that it's uh, federal subsidization of ranching in these areas that makes it sustainable. If we were just to you know, leave it up to the invisible hand
land of the free market or whatever, uh, ranking would not be sustainable in the canyon country just because it is such a rough country. So, yeah, we have kind of on that side, we have kind of artificial expectations or hopes for the canyon country. On the other side, uh, I I try to uh, be an equal opportunity um, uh, gadfly in this book, and, and I don't leave uh, the environmentalists or wilderness preservationists out of this as well. Uh, those um, from the environmental side of things are also imposing false expectations and false mythologies on the canyon country. They're calling it uh, pristine wilderness when, by any definition of wilderness, it's not. Um, I end the book with the example of there's a certain canyon in the San Rafael Swell that you hike up about 12 miles. You think you are just in the middle of nowhere. You round the corner, and there is the rusted, rotting-out remains of, I think it's a Ford Model T truck or something like that, <laughs> in this canyon. Um, you know, uh, The charred remains of a truck are not wilderness. And so on either side of these things, we have people saying either, well, it's going to be a cattleman's mecca, or it's going to be this pristine environmental wilderness. And it's really, it's really neither of those. And mm. that's what makes it such a, a confusing landscape and such an alluring landscape, I think. We're talking with Paul Nelson. He is author of Wrecks of Human Ambition, a history of Utah's canyon country to 1936. Very interesting uh, history of how uh, humans over uh, many centuries have uh, tried to impose their ideals of a good land on a on a bad land from their point of view. This was not the verdant agricultural sustainable uh, land. It's a very different land. Of course, the, the very character of the land that uh, made it undesirable now in many ways makes it desirable and uh, still fragile. And, uh, you know, there's the possibility of loving the land to death uh, today, even the remote areas of uh, the canyon country of southeastern Utah. We'd love to hear your uh, stories of uh, canyon country. Um, if, if you've been there, if you love these lands, uh, tell us about it and uh, respond to some of the themes in the book. Uh, the number to reach us is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. More with Paul Nelson following this break. When Jimmy Wales started Wikipedia, it was manageable. In the early days, I used to read every single edit um, wow. as they came in. I would click and see what someone had done. Someone in Yellow Springs, Ohio, edited Spanish language someone in the United States, States. States. edited of Monsters and Men. And that someone only lasted for a very short period of time. It got very fast. It was impossible to keep up with everything. Channeling chaos into collaboration. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Write It Up, hosting Sunset on the Square in St. George, Friday, May 23rd at 6 o'clock p.m., with line dancing, family games, and the movie Babe at Sunset, held every second and fourth Friday of the month through August. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Paul Nelson. He holds a Ph.D. from Southern Methodist University. He's a native Utah, lifelong lover of canyon country, southeastern Utah, northeastern Arizona. He's traveled and climbed, rafted, and hiked through the region extensively. He's written a history, very interesting history, a history of Utah's canyon country to 1936. It's called Wrecks of Human Ambition. And we'd love to have you respond. I'd love to hear your stories of canyon country. 
why you love the country or or what you think is is the best use for the land, the number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Paul Nelson, you write in the book, uh, we can map the canyon country according to its variability to hinder settlement. I wonder if you'd take us on the little tour that you do in your introduction. Uh, some of these, t- Many of these towns we'd be familiar with, uh, and, and they're all, with one exception, on the periphery of canyon country. Yeah, that's true. And um, let's see if I can do this from memory, because I don't have a map sitting out in front of me. Um, but yeah, first of all, I did, this was not my idea. I believe that, uh, oh, I think in uh, Edward Abbey and Philip Hyde's, uh, you know, beautiful coffee table book uh, published by the Sierra Club in the early 70s called Slick Rock, uh, they made this point as well. But it's interesting, if you were to draw a line um, from north and then clockwise down south around the edges of the canyon country, you would hit basically cities surrounding the periphery, but really nothing in between. Uh, let's say it's, it's maybe kind of a teardrop shape, but let's start out in the north. Say um, you drive through, uh, you know, from Provo up through Spanish Fork Canyon and then down to Price. Uh, there are elements of the canyon country in Price. Uh, it's definitely not, you know, the heart of complex Slot Canyon, uh, Colorado River canyon country, but it's arid. It has, um, it has you know, shaly cliffs, beautiful uh, canyons, that kind of thing. So you have Price. Let's say you move down, uh, drive down Highway 6 along the book cliffs. The book cliffs are a very nice, orderly northeastern boundary to the canyon country, although you know, there, are canyon country, there are canyons past the book cliffs as well, like Desolation Canyon along the Green River. But move from Price uh, down to, say, I think the next major uh, town that's still in existence would be Moab. Uh, move on further south, down 199 from Moab, and you start going through these little Mormon outposts that were settled um, in the 1880s. Uh, you get to uh, Monticello, uh, Blanding, um, Bluff, and then you gradually start uh, turning a corner to the west um, at Bluff. You start moving west along the San Juan River to Mexican Hat. Now, south of this line between Mexican Hat and Bluff, it's still arid. It's still very, very uh, rough desert canyon country, but it's kind of more a cultural boundary. This was originally the Navajo Mormon frontier, and south of this point, you get slightly fewer canyons. You still have, you know, these iconic mesas and buttes. I mean, Monument Valley is down there. That's very much kind of canyon country motifs. Um, but I, I make the point in the book that this is kind of the southern boundary of the canyon country. And it, of all the boundaries of the canyon country, is the most cultural and the least geological or least geographic. Um, both Navajo country and canyon country are desert. Uh, they're both red rocks. But the canyons gradually just kind of ease off as you move uh, down uh, south from Mexican Hat and Bluff. Then go further on this kind of tour, this uh, clockwise tour around the cities on the edge of the canyon country. Uh, The next one you come to is Page. Uh, This was really not a historic uh, city settled, you know, by any, like, agricultural or anything like that. It basically popped up uh, in support of Glen Canyon Dam. Um, But then you move further uh, west from Page to Kanab. Once again, this is on the boundaries of the canyon country. It's got a nice uh, cold water... um, creek that's coming up from the mountains from kind of the north that's coming down and providing reliable irrigation there. And then you gradually move north, and so we're on the western boundary of the canyon country right now. Moving from Kanab, you go through, oh, this is where I lose sense of my geography without a map in front of me. You go through, uh, you know, Orderville, uh, what are the other towns in that area? They're all the villes. You get to Cannonville, Henryville, Tropic, around Bryce Canyon. 
Then you gradually start moving back northeast. Uh, you hit Escalante. Uh, Escalante, once again, classic Mormon uh, settlement of, um, of mountains on one side and then desert on the other. So they're nicely situated between these two um, environments. Um, from Escalante, you go to Boulder. Once again, same thing, mountains on one side, desert on the other. Uh, then you get into the settlements of, um, they called it Rabbit Valley. Now we call it Wayne County or the upper Fremont River. Uh, you get to Torrey and Loa and Bicknell, uh, move gradually up. You get into Emory County, uh, the town of Emory, then Farron, then um, uh, Castledale, uh, Orangeville, and you're back at Price. And so these are all these settlements that are lining the edges of the canyon country, and there's only one really permanent settlement that was settled, you know, with the aims of Mormon agricultural that is within the canyon country. And it's smack dab in the middle, and it's Hanksville. And uh, anyone who's been to Hanksville might argue, oh, you're going to get irate calls from this, uh, might, might argue that it's not quite a town. I mean, it's, it's a couple truck stops and a lot of uh, flat desert on all sides. Um, and it really, it never really survived sustainably as an agricultural hub. It's a, it survived by necessity as being a, a refueling, kind of a restocking station um, from the railroad up around uh, present-day I-70 uh, for uh, people going from the railroad down into Glen Canyon. Originally, it was kind of a restocking supply when there was a gold rush in Glen Canyon in the 1890s. Um, and now, of course, everyone who is hauling their giant houseboats to Lake Powell has to stop there and... Um, pay for overpriced gasoline in Hanksville, so that's what kind of keeps it going. But yeah, it's really the only um, permanent settlement within the canyon country that we could call a town. There are other, you know, small, like, like permanent ranches. You know, there's a ranch around Indian Creek Canyon, outside Canyonlands National Park. Uh, there's, um, you know, there are, like, sporadic, uh, you know, little pockets of agriculture in, you know, in Caneville and, you know, kind of those areas. But Hanksville is really the only thing that we could call a town that's within the boundaries of the canyon country. And the other towns that were attempted to settle there, uh, Caneville, uh, Perea, that we talked about before the break, uh, they really did not sustain themselves as mm. towns. Yeah, so, yeah, that's kind of, uh, I, I hope my memory served me. Yes, yeah, I, I think that it's, it seems, seems accurate. And that is interesting, this, this interior Canyonland area. Uh, has been home to relatively few, as you write. These towns are all on, on the periphery. Uh, by the way, uh, irate residents of Hanksville, Paul Nelson is his name. That's uh, you can you can contact <laughs> him. But <laughs> um, I, I wonder if we could uh, maybe take some snapshots next of people's reaction to this land. And I want to start with uh, with Canesville, and we've talked about that. This is an attempted settlement which uh, j- just couldn't make a go of it. They were trying to use techniques from other areas, and it, and it just, and ironically, it was wiped out in a flash flood. Um, it, it just so poignant. Looking back 60 years later, you're quoting Evangeline Godby in the Deseret News. I just want to read this. Um, she's looking back to her childhood in Caneville. She said, I still go back to the valley and ask, where did paradise go? I see the brush-choked streets, the grass burrs, sand burrs, cockle burrs, and wild morning glory. I see the decay. Power machinery should be the answer, but a band of pioneers made that valley valley far greater and far better than modern technology is making it. That's that's one response to the to the land that um, that we've we've talked about. Uh, so poignant from from this lady who's who still was was wishing that uh, that the town was still there. Yes, and it's it's very poignant because, well, on one hand, you know, just just try to imagine 
having been there. You know, she was a child at the time that the floods hit, hit Caneville. And for, you know, for over a generation, Caneville was settled in, I believe, the early to mid-1880s, and it survived until 1909. Um, there are still, you know, there are still, like, really nice uh, alfalfa fields. Um, I think people grow melons in Caneville these days as well. Um, so it, it's not completely abandoned. It's not like a howling, tumbleweed-filled ghost town. But it is not the ideal Mormon settlement with little streets and poplars and a, a church and a ward and that kind of thing. But you know, for an entire generation, you know, it was people's home, and it was not an it, it wasn't it wasn't a frontier outpost. It was it was a community. It was a village. And what's interesting is if you also read into uh, her comments there, you, you you see a bit of this kind of like uh, this kind of um, Oh, I'm trying to think of the appropriate adjective here. Uh, this kind of like up by your bootstraps frontier settler pride, saying, "Well, we didn't have technology when we settled it. We just did it, you know, with our, you know, with our, our two hardworking hands." And uh, and this is true. And beneath that, when she mentions the cockleburs and the sambers and that kind of thing, there was some animosity leading up to the uh, the flooding of Caneville between Mormon farmers in the area and um, and absentee ranchers who were just turning sheep and cattle loose on the mountains above Caneville uh, and in the Henry Mountains south of it. And uh, modern uh, ecologists and environmental scientists have actually made the case that part of the reason that the floods were so bad in Caneville was because there was unregulated ranching, um, often by uh, often by outsiders and non-Mormons uh, who kind of you know lacked this like kind of communal we're in it together attitude, uh, that just overgrazed the mountains, um, wiped out the ground cover there, and so the flash floods were that much worse. Uh, actually, um, right around the time that Caneville was settled in the 1880s, a few of Powell's uh, of John Wesley Powell's uh, scientists who were surveying the area actually made a comment of that. They were like, wow, there's a lot of overgrazing in this area. It could create really bad floods. So, and I think that, uh, I think that uh, Evangeline Godby, in those words, she might have even had a trace of this old animosity towards the ranchers who weren't living there. They weren't building a village. They just turned their cows loose and destroyed the nice little idyllic village. Um, and paradise went down to Fremont. But yeah. Uh, we're talking with uh, Paul Nelson, author of Wrecks of Human Ambition, A History of Utah's Canyon Country to 1936. We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, I want to get into uh, colonial Spain's encounter with this uh, this area. And uh, as I think always happens uh, when you're heading off into the unknown, imagination and your values head before you. That, that's the point that Paul Nelson is making. And so they had this ideal of Taguayo. We'll, we'll get into talking about that. We'll also talk about this very interesting idea, um, and Paul Nelson quotes Edmund Burke, this idea of a sublime terror, awe, reverence for the land, uh, which is another strain uh, that, that comes down to today. We have a question from uh, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona as well, all of that following the break. Waste not. Don't use running water to thaw food. Defrost food in the refrigerator for water efficiency and food safety. Another water efficiency tip, only run your washing machine and dishwasher with full loads. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. 
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, with a changing menu including a Mediterranean salad with artichoke hearts, sun-dried tomatoes, and feta. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, you're uh, hearing a discussion of Wrecks of Human Ambition, a history of Utah's canyon country to 1936. Paul Nelson is the author. He holds a Ph.D. in American history from Southern Methodist University. Paul Nelson, I think you now live in West Virginia? I, I do. I live in uh, Fayetteville, West Virginia, which um, it's also canyon country. There are a lot of canyons, but there is nothing arid about it. Uh, we get way over 40 inches of rain um, a year. And uh, it has its own unique uh, environmental uh, challenges and, uh, and beauties as well. But, yeah, I'm living there right now. And I, I wanted you to compare and contrast this. It, it, in many ways, Utah's canyon country here, southeastern Utah, is, is very unique and very daunting. You, you, you can't go in a straight line across it, uh, no permanent settlements except on the periphery. Uh, now, you've, now you're in West Virginia. Well, West Virginia has plenty of settlements, um, but it also has some, you know, it, it's also, uh, it's, it's a very crooked geography. Um, anyone who's spent time there knows that you can't travel in a straight line there as well. Uh, the Appalachians, um, they're a very old mountain range, and they have been carved down. I actually live on the rim of uh, the canyon of a river called the New River, and ironically enough, the New River is uh, one of the oldest rivers in the United States. It's been carving this canyon for just millions and millions of years. But uh, it's, you know, travel through West Virginia is likewise difficult um, in the canyon country. But because of the rainfall and the very verdant, lush plant life and the water, it's easier to settle. And because of West Virginia's proximity to the Ohio River and major commercial industrial hubs in uh, the eastern U.S., uh, it's been exploited much more than the canyon country. Um, its coal reserves are actually much more reliable than the canyon country's uranium reserves as well. Um, but, you know, the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, kind of difference I've seen between Appalachia and the canyon country is that all the exploitation that um, mining promoters or railroad promoters wanted to happen in the canyon country happened in Appalachia. And we can kind of see uh, the results of that. Um, I was living uh, in Fayetteville, West Virginia, you know, just a couple months ago when down the river uh, on the Elk River we had that massive uh, Freedom Industries chemical spill that left, you know, uh, over 100,000 people without drinking water for two weeks. Yeah, and, and I'm sure, I know there are fears in the canyon country, people living near or in canyon country, about perhaps similar problems. There, There is um, energy uh, to be found in, in canyon country. Yeah, there is, and... um. I mean, you know, the, the the most the biggest mining boom in the Canyon Country was the uranium boom. It was an immediate uh, product of um, of the Cold War. Uh, you know, we needed to make a lot of bombs and have a lot of uranium on hand for uh, for nuclear power, and it was completely uh, subsidized, subsidized, funded by the U.S. government. But it left its mark on the Canyon Country. Um, there is a Superfund site right outside Moab, Utah, that's a giant uranium uh, tailing. Um, pile, and when the winds hit Moab, uh, just the right or wrong way, uh, it blows uranium dust <laughs> into the town. Um, and uh, like Appalachia, Moab has just cancer rates that are just through the roof, much higher than the national uh, average. 
So in a lot of ways, once again, most both of these areas, Appalachia and uh, the Canyon Country, they're almost like interior colonies of the United States that are seen only as extractive hubs and places that we can maybe just sacrifice for the good of the rest of the country. Mm. Uh, I want to get to this uh, question, very interesting question from Steve, but uh, first uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this very interesting idea of sublime terror. It's a reaction of, yeah. of people to the land. Edmund well, Burke, philosopher. The, the sublime terror, you know, some of that was just standard academic jargon. You know, I'd, I'd read the Edmund Burke. Uh, he was a um, conservative Enlightenment philosopher uh, in the 1700s. Um, but uh, the re- I, I thought it was interesting that the Canyon Country, uh, Edward Abbey, when he wrote a scene of the Canyon Country for the first time, he said, it wasn't what I would call beautiful. He said, when we, when we think beauty, we think nice little mountain peaks, but they're in the background. Then we think nice green valleys and maybe a little cabin, just little traces of human habitation there. And he said the canyon country was not that. It was an alien, almost, you know, like Martian, otherworldly landscape, twisted rocks, deep canyons, no sign of plant life, even though, you know, there are the occasional plants there. But something about it, something in, uh, something about this kind of landscape that looks a bit hostile kind of strikes something good in, in the hearts of a lot of us, uh, in our psyche. And I'll admit, uh, my other great passion, other than writing history, is, um, is uh, rock climbing. And uh, I think of the sublime terror every time you know, I'm on the side of you know, a crumbly red rock cliff face uh, in the canyon country. Um, it's what we climbers call type 2 fun, which is uh, it's only fun after you're done doing it. <laughs> you know, you're in the middle of this climb, you're like, oh, no, I'm going to die. This is terrible. This is terrible. Then you're done. You're like, wow, that was really, really amazing. And so that's, that's what I kind of think of. This might be the first time that anyone ever linked Edmund Burke's ideas of the sublime to type two fun. But yeah, that's, and that's definitely the feeling. Anyone of us who, who has spent a lot of time in the canyon country, we get that. It's not completely comfortable. It's not the same as like waking up on the side of a beautiful mountain stream that's nice and cool. Uh, there's something gritty and a bit scary and a bit hostile about it, and we like it for that reason. Mm. And, and would, would attract, uh, I guess type of person who likes that. Yes. Who yeah. goes for the type two, type two fun. <laughs> uh, let, me, uh, let me give you Steve's question. Uh, he says, Paul Nelson has told us that the borders of the proto-nation of Deseret were natural boundaries, which were later drawn into the straight line borders containing the state of Utah. How and when did this happen? Who redrew the boundaries? Did they just send in teams of straight-line surveyors? And why weren't the boundaries left as they had been? For many of your listeners, this this may be well-known history, but not to us all. It must have been quite a political struggle. It was a major political struggle, and I believe, um, just off the top of my head, uh, there's a great article in uh, Utah Historical Quarterly called something akin to, like, like, splitting a man down his backbone or something like that. But it basically makes the case that, um, the, first of all, it was not Mormons, it was not Utahns that redrew the boundaries of Deseret. Uh, the reason that Utah is the shape that it is, the weird little box with a, with a corner missing, um, is because of rising federal incursion. It's, it, it's because of a U.S. government that has just subjugated the South during the Civil War. They're embarking on what a historian named Elliot West has called the Greater Reconstruction, in which they're saying, we will pacify Indian tribes, we will connect the country with a railroad, and we will put down these pesky religious and cultural minorities, whether Indians or Mormons or Hispanics living in New Mexico. And one way of doing this was to impose boundaries from Washington. 
Um, and uh, on top of that, a lot of states, uh, Colorado, Nevada, uh, realized that Mormons were not politically powerful, and so they were gradually pushing their boundaries further, further uh, east and west as well. So it's almost it, it's kind of interesting. I'm trying to imagine like a little cartoon of Utah gradually getting boxed in, boxed in by a bully federal government and by bully Nevada and Colorado. Um, that is a simplistic uh, um, summary of it. That uh, that's essentially what happened. Is mm. it was as as outside government power arose, Utah's boundaries became less natural and more box-like. And those straight lines do in northern Utah. Of course, we have uh, experience with this. Cache Valley is bisected between two states, uh, Bear Lake, for example, and there, there are many instances of this where they just drew straight lines on on the landscape. I wonder. Yep. Uh, we just have about three minutes left. I wonder if you could give the uh, Cliff Notes version of this uh, interesting idea of Taguayo, going back to sixteenth and seventeenth uh, and eighteenth century. Uh, this is the far north of of New Spain. Oh wow! Three minutes to oh three minutes to encapsulate Taguayo. I wish my grad advisor was alive to hear this right now. Um, basically, Taguayo was a mythical land that Spanish cartographers had never seen, but they believed was the homeland to the Aztec nation. Um, we do know that actually the Aztecs did arise somewhere in the area of Utah or Arizona before they moved down to Mexico City. Um, but they kind of built it into this uh, mythical land where everything was green, well watered, and good. Uh, sometimes they said there were, you know, seven cities of gold and stuff like that as well. Um, and that was Teguayo. Uh, one guy, I believe his name was uh, Zarate Salmaron, um, in the early 1600s, he wrote that Teguayo has very wide, beautiful rivers uh, with bison herds around them, the best feeds, the best country in the entire continent. We just need to go up there and settle it. Oh, and its Indians are just waiting for conversion to Catholicism as well. So that was, that was kind of the myth of Teguayo. And when um, very limited Spanish explorers finally came up in this area that maps said was Teguayo, um, they found that it was the complete opposite. It was canyon country. It was red and brown, not green. Its rivers were broken, were down in canyons, and had massive rapids. Uh, there were no sprawling, beautiful grasslands or bison herds anywhere to be seen. So I thought that was kind of an interesting, like, springboard uh, to jump into more well-known history of the canyon country in which expectations did not measure up to reality. By the way, you, you have a very interesting coda to the book, and uh, it, it begins with a 1922 expedition from uh, a Utah delegation, interestingly heading to uh, the conference that will make the Colorado Compact, including the group Mormon Apostle John Witso, who's of course a dry farming expert, former president of Utah State University, and I think BYU as well. And this is where you get the, the title. Just uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about that just briefly, about a minute. Well, first of all, uh, it, I, I just love the fact that Witso wrote those words, wrecks of human ambition, lay strewn about. It was the best title imaginable. It was way better than my dissertation title, which was Utah's Canyon Country. Um, but he was taking a float trip down Glen Canyon, and remember, Witso's kind of on a bridge between 19th century Mormonism and 20th century Mormonism. He's thinking about development. He's thinking about uh, 
capitalizing and exploiting resources, but at the same time, he has some traces of this older Brigham Young era suspicion of extractive industry. And he floated by some ruins um, of old mining operations along the Colorado near uh, Lee's Ferry, if you know that area, uh, where I think a guy named Charles Spencer had built this huge steam pump that was going to blast the sides of the cliffs with water and extract gold. And he could look down it with all of the smugness of um, you know of a religious authority and say, well, that's what happens when people overstep their bounds and try to exploit something in places that they shouldn't. And so that's just what I think of whenever you see you know these these remains, whether it's of uh, of a steam engine or maybe the old ruined houses in Caneville or for that matter uh, ancestral Puebloan ruins in the Canyons of Grand Gulch. You can see them as wrecks of human ambition, just as little pockmarks of human development around a, uh, around a canyon country that preserves them beautifully, but not permanently, mm. and uh, is not permanently habitable. We'll leave it there. Much more to read, and uh, you'll have to pick up the book. It's from uh, University of Utah Press, Wrecks of Human Ambition, A History of Utah's Canyon Country to 1936. Paul Nelson is the author. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Tom. Join us tomorrow, of course, for Access Utah. We hope you'll be with us, and uh, thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. Hi, I'm Holly Strand of the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. In each of Utah's six corners, you'll find one or more remarkable natural features. Moreover, each corner represents a totally different geographic environment. No doubt you are familiar with the turquoise blue Bear Lake in the upper northeast, the magnificent high Uintas near the indentation formed by Wyoming, Flaming Gorge and Dinosaur National Monument flank the lower northeast corner, the Four Corners area belongs to the Navajo. The ancient ruins and Monument Valley draw visitors from around the world. The numerous canyon parks in Utah's southwest corner offer endless opportunities for exploration. That's five corners, but what do you know about the northwest corner of our state? I live in northern Utah, and I had never been there. Resolved to correct this omission, I consulted a map as well as Joan Hammer in Box Elder County's Office of Tourism. I concluded that the Raft River Mountains were worth checking out. Bull Mountain, the highest point in Box Elder County, is here. And the 40-mile long range defines the southernmost section of Sawtooth National Forest. The Raft River Mountains are unusual in that they run east-west. The normal pattern for basin and range country is north-south. The east-west orientation creates an important geographic dividing line. Clear Creek drains the northern slopes of the Raft River Mountains. Then Clear Creek joins the Raft River, which flows north to the Snake River. Thus, the mountains form the sole, and very small, piece of Utah real estate that belongs to the Great Columbia River Basin. The southern slopes are part of the Great Basin. Rain or snow falling on this side is absorbed into the ground or evaporates. Another interesting point. The Raft River Mountains is where you can view some of the oldest rock in Utah. In this region, outcrops of Precambrian material are 2.5 billion years old. The largest and thickest exposures are in the eastern half of the range. 
The Raft River mountain peaks may not make it onto postcards, but when I saw them, they were nothing less than beautiful. The lower slopes of sagebrush had that grayish-green tint that emerges all too briefly in the spring. Snow still gleamed on the eight to 9,000-foot mountain summits. Clear Creek was running full through riparian forest that was just starting to leaf out. There were no people at the campground, but wildlife was plentiful. I saw wild turkey, deer, jackrabbits, and squirrels. A few pronghorn looked up as I drove out through the sagebrush. All in all, I found Utah's sixth corner to be well worth a visit. For pictures and more information about the Raft River Mountains, go to www.wildaboututah.org. For Wild About Utah and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, I'm Holly Strand. Wild About Utah, a partnership of the Bridgerland Audubon Society, USU Extension, and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto-Casper. This week we're celebrating food from around the globe, from the Basque Country in Spain, where a young sheep herder is making a standout cheese, to the food of the Philippines, to one of the most enviable spice cabinets in the world in Midtown Manhattan. That's The Splendid Table from APM. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hello, this is Terry Guy, Business Development Manager at Utah Public Radio. Together, contributing members and program sponsors make public radio possible. If your business would like to be recognized on air for supporting UPR, please call 435-797-3215. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. It's now 10 o'clock.